when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, our weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, we'll be looking at what did or did not happen with Brexit at this week's EU summit. Plus, we'll be examining whether the case has now been made for a second vote on the whole enterprise. I'm delighted to be joined by George Parker, down the line our political editor, Deputy Opinion Editor Miranda Green, Economics Commentator Martin Wolf, and Political Commentator Philip Stevens. Thank you all for joining, and if you enjoy this episode of FT politics don't forget to subscribe through all the usual channels to receive it every saturday morning well it was another extraordinary week in british politics where a lot happened and nothing really happened Theresa may went to brussels and returned somewhat empty-handed aside from a few barbed criticisms about the lack of progress meanwhile back home her cabinet minister appeared to have given up on collective responsibility and now openly freelancing on policy and attacking each other's policies George Parker, thanks for joining us from Brussels. You've been following the summit this week to tell us what happened at the summit and how Theresa May went down. Well, Theresa May uh, got her allotted uh, five or ten minutes at the um, summit dinner to explain what progress had been made on Brexit. And frankly, she probably didn't need that long because hardly any progress has been made uh, on Brexit negotiations. In the European Council conclusions, they said that no significant progress had been made at all on the key issue of the Irish backstop. And she was basically sent away with two messages. One is get a move on. It's totally unacceptable. Things are moving so slowly. And the second thing, I think, which was quite significant in the, in the council communique was a line inserted at the request of the British, which was that if the UK starts to soften its red lines, the EU would be prepared to make a slightly better offer. So that's an encouragement to Theresa May to go back to Britain, take on her cabinet at Chequers at the end of next week and come up with a deal which Brussels can actually seriously engage with. The crucial message for me seemed to come from Jean-Claude Juncker, who essentially said what everyone in Westminster has been talking about, which is Theresa May needs to face down her opponents inside her own cabinet. And this is obviously, again, a reference to that Cheka summit next week. And this idea we're going to get some kind of plan out of that, do you think that's going to happen or is it just going to be more can kicking down the road? Well, I think there's a general acceptance that time has now almost run out. This deal has got to be done by the autumn. We've got the summer coming up, where things basically seldom happen in Brussels, let alone at Westminster. Some people are calculating we may only have about six weeks left of negotiating, serious negotiating time. So if they don't get an agreement at Chequers, when will they? So I think that progress has to be made. Now, the problem with it is that think about the format here. She's going to have 25 or so cabinet ministers, the whole cabinet at Chequers, trying to resolve these intractable issues which have been hanging over the cabinet for two years now, all in the space of a day, with a view of all that being synthesised into a government's white paper the following week. So I think there will have to be some clarity. But equally, judging by the way that Theresa May does business, I should think where she can fudge issues, she will. So Miranda Green, obviously Brexit has played a big part of things this week, but what has been more extraordinary is just the behaviour of some cabinet ministers. We began early in the week with Boris Johnson hopping on a plane to Afghanistan to avoid the vote on Heathrow, while Greg Hans, who was a junior minister, decided that he would resign instead of you know, having to vote for something he didn't believe in. 
Then we've had Gavin Williamson's extraordinary intervention again, saying the PM doesn't give him £20 billion for the military. Then he'll bring her down. And then we had Liz Truss, who's the Chief Secretary to the Treasury, who has high career aspirations for the future, popping up and attacking Michael Gove's environmental policies and essentially saying the government's getting it all wrong on public spending. So really, you know, you have to ask yourself, what earth is going on with the government at the moment? Well, Mrs May's ministers seem to have completely forgotten the adage that, you know, you might as well hang together or hang separately and have turned into some sort of bizarre government circular firing squad. I think the Boris Johnson furore, or there are more than one really, because of his outrageous remarks about what the business community could go and do and they're worried about the effects of Brexit is probably the most serious in terms of damaging this Conservative brand as being the party of business. Disastrous on that front. And also having your Foreign Secretary really completely AWOL and beyond any sort of discipline by number 10 is a pretty bad situation. I mean, I think my favourite of the week is Liz Truss's bizarre outburst against Michael Gove, actually. I mean, she sort of set it up as being the kind of fiscally conservative conscience of the Conservative Party to try and remind other ministers, not least Gavin Williamson, that just because the NHS is getting lots more money, that other Whitehall departments can't expect similar largesse or the Conservative Party will lose their other sort of key brand ingredient of being fiscally responsible. But she was sort of slagging off a cabinet colleague, a more senior cabinet colleague, in the most extraordinary terms. And it's really become sort of slightly comic if it weren't so serious. George has been saying there's this awful feeling of urgency. The Brexit decisions have to be made next week. There has to be some sort of common position determined by the end of next week or we really are in total chaos. And that's before you even get to the important business of trying to do the deal with Brussels, if possible, before the October summit. I think it's a really extraordinary position to be in just before the summer break. The idea that Mrs May had any authority over this crazy collection of individuals seems to have disappeared entirely. The only thing I think you can hope for is that this kind of alliance between the Treasury and the more sensible members of the Cabinet will prevail. You know, this idea, as George in his excellent piece at the beginning of the week said, the idea that Hammond is trying to weaponise the weakness of the EU economy as an argument for doing a proper sensible compromise deal with Brussels. That, I think, is the only sort of bright spot in any of this chaos. The real question, I suppose, George, is that they all know Theresa May can't sack these people because she's lacking any authority at the moment. And the balance between the cabinet of Remainers and Leavers and friends and enemies is so delicate at the moment. She doesn't really want to tip that over. So essentially, they can all go out there, say these things, get a gentle slap on the wrist from the Downing Street press office and then essentially go on as before. And I spoke to one prominent Conservative MP this week who I was saying, you know, isn't this dreadful? And this MP said to me, well, yes, it is dreadful, but actually it doesn't matter because you can't say they're distracting from any domestic policy because we don't have any. And to be <laughs> honest, any distraction from Brexit is a good thing because it's all going so badly. One thing you can take away from this week is that the discussions in the Conservative Party about a leadership contest are far more advanced than some people had necessarily thought. What we've really seen this week is the start of a Tory leadership contest. Theresa May, as you say, has got no real authority left and evaporated really after that election last year. And there's an expectation that Theresa May will probably be gone by the summer of next year. Some people, I think, are even speculating the minister who was wondering whether she could survive the next few weeks as she tries to navigate these Brexit discussions. So people are putting themselves out there. I think the one thing I would say is that though she's in no position to sack them, the parliamentary party looks rather dimly upon people who are rocking the boat, destabilising the government, being disloyal to the prime minister. So I think if you look at um, the antics of someone like uh, Gavin Williams' defence department 
or indeed some of the comments of Boris Johnson, that doesn't go down well with either the parliamentary party or with the people who would ultimately choose the Tory leader. So I think despite the fact that discipline is breaking down, I think the party will look rather more kindly on people who are doing this kind of positioning in a more discreet way. And I'm thinking here in particular of someone like Michael Gove, who's doing a lot of work behind the scenes, going to lots of dinners with MPs, actually getting on with the day job of coming up with policies, which strangely enough are quite popular at the Environment Department, rather than people who are showboating on the front page of the Daily Telegraph. I think that's absolutely right. As George says, you know, you really need to keep an eye on Michael Gove, not least because he seems to be lacking an appetite to push Mrs May off the tightrope that she's been walking for the last few months, which would be the intelligent position. There's been lots of rumours around of David Davis about to storm out, Boris Johnson about to sort storm out, and it seems that Gove does not have an appetite for that at the moment, probably for the reasons that George has explained. What you're also seeing as well is the contours of what that contest is going to be about. They're always about personality, but they're also about the ideas behind it. And I think you saw also again Jeremy Hunt, who, as George was saying, someone else who's working quite discreetly behind the scenes to build up support. And he did an event this week where he was saying that the Conservatives cannot win. If it's a question between low taxes and poor public services, people will choose the option that will give them better public services. So I think you've got a leadership pitch from that side of the party, which is very much saying, well, Labour's gone so far to the left. Actually, here's a moderate, sensible tax and spend proposal. Vote for me. Then you've got the Liz Trust kind of side of things, which is very much we've got to have clear blue water and have low taxes and a dynamic economy. That's where I think the next leadership contest is going to be. That could get very messy and then you see people like Michael Gove who might just sail through as a different sort of person towards this but it does feel, George, that things are coming to a head a bit, particularly about the Brexit landing zone, that you did a story this week about the growing expectations that Boris Johnson may end up having to leave the cabinet because of the compromises he's going to have to swallow over the Prime Minister's proposals, which if Boris was going to resign on a principal purpose, he could have done it several times already now. So a lot of people will say, well, come on, really? Is he actually going to go? But the fact people are talking about this does suggest there is a lot of fudging and compromising on red lines to come. Theresa May acknowledges she's going to have to shift the government's position. I mean, the negotiations, I'm speaking to you in Brussels, the negotiations here are completely stalled. My colleague Alex Barker and I have just been calculating how many uh, days of negotiations David Davis, the chief Brexit negotiator, has had in Brussels with his opposite number, Michel Barnier. We think it's three hours in the whole of 2018. That's an average of 30 minutes per month on the most crucial issue facing the country. So Theresa May does need to move the dial on Brexit. She is about to embark on a softer Brexit approach, I think, backed by the Treasury. Michael Gove, I think, is prepared to sort of act as a bit of a compromise broker on that. And then the question arises, can the Brexiteers swallow it? Well, it's become a bit of a running joke that David Davis keeps threatening to resign and doesn't. And I'm told by Boris Johnson's people that he has no intention of resigning. The question is, how much more are they prepared to take? And it's a big gamble for Theresa May. I think the next two weeks are really dangerous for her and we'll see how far she's prepared to push it. But certainly you have ministers speculating privately that either Mr Johnson will go or other ministers will go or even that Theresa May's authority will be so fragile that the government could fall apart. We'll have to see because basically at Chequers they're going to be asked to look over the precipice and we'll see who's prepared to jump. If Boris walked out of the cabinet on his own, he would be somewhat isolated. I think his support in the Conservative Party is pretty low at the moment. And it's not really sure what he would go to do. You know, he would go to the back benches and he would essentially try and fulfil the role Jacob Rees-Mogg fills, which is being the most ardent advocate for a clean break. But if Boris left with, say, Liam Fox or David Davis, then it's very dangerous territory for Mrs May because there will be three senior people and they would come out and could say, look, Brexit is being betrayed. It's not happening. It's unacceptable. 
we need a different course. And they would be a rallying point around that I think in the way Boris on his own wouldn't be. Well, that's right. And when Mrs May first appointed her cabinet, it was seen as a sort of dangerous but quite clever trick to bring those three individuals into the cabinet to sort of neutralise them on the principle of the inside the tent pissing out, not outside the tent pissing in. I think since the Foreign Secretary's lowered the tone so, so much this week, I'm allowed to say that. But of course, that has had inherent dangers all the way along and has led to this situation where she's had to balance the two sides of the cabinet. Wouldn't you love to be a fly on the wall next week at Chequers because it's going to be the most extraordinary showdown. And as George says, you know, will it come to that moment that is much threatened where one, two or three of them actually walk out? On this kind of positioning for a potential leadership election, I do think we should sort of call out Jeremy Hunt, by the way, even though he's clearly done very well in getting a much better financial settlement for the NHS. His kind of late conversion to the cause of Brexit and then being one of the principal people this week who has taken the Boris Johnson line that business can go hang because it's really not important what happens to the economy after Brexit. I mean, he should slightly hang his head on that count, I think. People in the cabinet, George, who are born again Brexiters, and they're ironically all the people who are limbering up for the leadership contest, you know, Sajid Javid, Gavin Williamson, Jeremy Hunt, these are all people who backed Remain enthusiastically or otherwise, and are now putting out much more Brexity noises because they think it's going to do well for them when they have to hust in front of the party. And it's ludicrously transparent, isn't it? I think some people can see through it fairly easily. I think I'm right in saying that Jeremy Hunt not very long ago was advocating a second referendum on Brexit to move from one extreme of the argument to the other where businesses' views on Brexit are not, not to be considered at all. And, yeah, and you've got people like Sajid Javid and you've got people like Gavin Williamson. And I think this is a point that uh, the Chancellor Philip Hammond will be making at the Chequers meeting next week, which is fine. You know, Sajid Javid, you want more money for the police. Um, and Gavin Williamson, you want more money for the armed forces. But the fact is, you'll only get that money if the economy grows. And what's your position on Brexit? Well, it's to have the most economically destructive Brexit you can imagine, simply because they want to flaunt their credentials in front of the Conservative selectorate. It's an absurd situation, which, as Miranda was saying, she's just called them out. Well, I hope Philip Hammond will be calling them out at the meeting next week. Last question, George. After checkers, what's the timetable next? Because there's two crucial things on the horizon. One is the customs bill coming in front of the House of Commons, which could be a flashpoint on voting to keep Britain in the customs union. And then this infamous white paper. Yes, well, the meeting in Chequers is on Friday. It's an all-day event. It's probably going to go on late into the evening. And then the speculation is that the white paper would then come out the following Monday. Now, that's going to take a fairly heroic amount of work over the weekend, I think, uh, to try and synthesise the, no doubt, slightly inchoate conversations that take place at Chequers into a single document by the Monday. But that seems to be the working assumption. Then we'll have an idea of what the government's preferred option is in terms of our future customs relationship with the EU. And once that is finalised and published, Theresa May then hopes that she'll be able to overcome a potential rebellion on the customs union question when MPs vote on two separate amendments, one on the customs bill and the trade bill sometime in the middle of July. So those are the big issues facing the government on Brexit in the next few weeks. And third into the mix, you've got a potentially tricky meeting with Donald Trump as well, a NATO summit. So it's going to be a very interesting end to the political year.
Well, for more of that, I think we can conclude Brexit is not exactly going to plan. So have we reached the point at which we should really be rethinking the whole enterprise? The prospect of a second referendum or another vote on the question keeps popping up. Would it ease the country's tensions or would it make them even worse? Two of the FT's finest columnists have taken some different views on this, so we're going to hear the case from both sides. Philip Stevens, let's begin. In your excellent column this week, you put the Burkean Conservative case for rethinking Brexit very shortly. Tell us what it is. Well, I'm not suggesting a simple rerun of the referendum. I think what's clear two years in, though, is that people answered a question in the 2016 referendum, which is not the same question as the one that Parliament is now being presented with. We are going to face a situation in the autumn where a large number of parliamentarians are going to be voting by their own admission for something that they think is damaging to Britain's prosperity and future security. Now, if you believe in representative democracy and if you believe it's the first task role of a parliamentarian to do their best for the country they represent. It seems to me to be a corruption of a democracy to say, look, we want these MPs to vote for something that they don't believe in. My view is people weren't asked in 2016 about what the alternative to Brexit was. So when or if, perhaps we should say, there is a deal. I don't think having gone down the referendum road, you can't simply reverse it. But you can say to people, look, we will now give you an absolutely clear choice in the EU or the deal that's on offer from the EU27. You could say the original aberration of parliamentary democracy was by having a referendum on this in the first place. Absolutely, and I take the Thatcherite view. Uh, Mrs Thatcher was vehemently against this, calling uh, referendums the device of demagogues and dictators, and she was a true Burkean Tory in that respect. So you can't, unfortunately, unwind that. Although David Cameron did make it clear in Parliament that this was a consultative referendum. Right, Martin Wolf. let's take a slightly different perspective on this, and I'm sure you agree with a lot of the things Philip said about this not being the economically the right thing for the country and may damage the national interest, but you've argued that if we do have a second referendum, it would risk tearing the fabric of the country apart. Well, I think it perhaps follows from the structure of the the argument that Philip has put through. My view is exactly the same as his, that we should never have had the referendum and that what we're going to get is damaging. There's any disagreement on that. But it seems to me pretty clear Parliament knew that when it agreed to have the referendum. Whether it called it consultative or not, it couldn't really be so. So they bound their hands. And I don't think really, that the situation now is in any way surprising vis-a-vis what we knew at the time of the referendum. The nature of the negotiation, the sort of deals we might get were reasonably well known. And crucially, even in October, it's pretty clear the deal, full deal, we're not going to know even then. Not at all. All we'll know is the terms of departure with lots left open. So you could go back and it does amount, it seems to me, that this new referendum to a rerunning of the referendum. It's a, do you want to leave or not? And there's a final question, which I think Philip has addressed. So let's suppose we decide we don't want to leave by a margin of 51 to 49 or 52 to 48. Two questions arise. Will the EU accept our withdrawal of our application? If I were them, I wouldn't. 
And what would be the consequences of a tiny sliver of uh, reversal? Surely people will then say, well, we can have two referenda, we can have three referenda. What people will say is this is going to be under referendum forever. Clearly, this is going to be a divisive issue for the next 10 years, at least, in British politics. I think probably the rest of my working Um, life, all of our working lives. On Martin's question about whether the 27 would have us back, I think the answer is unequivocally yes. And a number of them have said so. Mr Macron, Mrs Merkel, Donald Tusk, the chairman of the European Council. I think actually, though... On the question of what people expected, I spent some time the other day going back and looking at what the Leave campaign actually said, what the prospectus was. Now, apart from all the obvious lies that, you know, Turkey's not joining the EU and there's no 350 million, what's really startling is that there's no definition in the Leave campaign itself, in the speeches, the publications... Mrs May's red lines, the customs union, doesn't feature at all. Mrs May's red lines are an invention after the referendum. Some said we have to leave the single market. People like Daniel Hanan said, no, no, we'll be like Norway. We'll be So there was no clear vote in 2016. It will not be clear in the next year, except to the extent that, one, the lies have been exposed, and two, people will be able to see much more clearly the consequences of decisions. If we want to be, for example, outside the European Court of Justice, people will then see the costs in terms of our security, in terms of sharing information about terrorism, and the costs economically of being outside that. None of that was part of the discussion in 2016. The other thing you have to consider as well is what would that be? Would it be the status quo or would it be something different? Because I can already picture a vote leave version two campaign where they would say, well, if we're going to stay in, we'll have to adopt the euro. We'll have to adopt Schengen. We cannot go to where we were before. And in that sense, you may actually end up with an even bigger leave vote. That is a danger. Well, obviously, one of the questions, because we are talking about hypotheticals, is what the rest of the EU would say if we said, well, we do want to withdraw our Article 50 application. Would they say you go back to where you were before you put it in? Or would they then say, well, actually, do you want to some sort of different relationship? That's quite a big deal. They might stick with it. Who knows? I actually do believe that for most of the public that never really was very closely engaged in this discussion and won't be now because this is not a question that can be decided in a referendum. It is essentially the same question as before. I don't think it has changed as profoundly as Philip suggests. I suppose we can have a debate about this. But these questions, these issues that I've raised still outstanding. What would it mean for us to go back? If we withdraw, and I defer here to John Kerr, Lord Kerr, who wrote Article 50, he says if we withdraw our letter, there is nothing in the treaty that would allow the others to stop us from doing that. And of course, we would be, our legal position would be just as now. People could not impose new conditions. There might be a legal fight, but I defer to him. On the question of, you know, where we are going to be, the idea, I think, in a, in a representative democracy, and I meet these MPs, and I'm sure that you do as well, who say, I am going to stand up in the House of Commons in November or December, or wherever it is, and vote for something that I think is bad for my country. Now, for me, that is so corrupting of democracy, so corrupting of our system. How can you ever have faith in a parliament where you know that parliament has voted consciously, knowingly, 
against the interests of the country. So I think that is so corrupting of our democracy that giving people, it's not perfect, giving people a clear choice, the one they didn't have in 2016, is now essential. That's what they did when they agreed on the referendum. And they voted to trigger Article 50 as well. They basically said... We can't decide this for whatever reason. We know roughly what they were. We are going to let the people decide it. Now, that was a conscious decision by our representatives to transfer the responsibility in this case to the people who are ultimately sovereign. Now, I think it's very foolish of them to do so, but I'm afraid I'm with my friend Bernard Bogdan. I think the British Constitution has changed. Parliament has changed it. We are, since we started on the referendum course in the 70s, we have changed our democracy in profound and I think very damaging ways, but it's very difficult now to come along and say we haven't. But does this mean we have to have referenda every couple of years or three years on everything major? Well, we might be going there, but I would think that's terrible. Do you think, Philip, that there may be another vote on this after we've actually left the EU formally in March 2019? Because we haven't actually talked about timeframes on this because we think about a cliff edge exit from the EU about this March. Well, actually, the real cliff edge seems to be when the transition period is over because we've notionally agreed to this state where Britain is a vassal state for a period where everything pretty much stays the same, except we don't have a say. If they don't come up with an agreement at that point, there could be a vote saying, well, actually, do we accept being a vassal state or do we accept a no deal or something like that? Do you think that's a possibility? Okay. well, let me first take issue with your loaded language. Vassal state is the language of Boris Johnson and the Labour front bench. When I go to Norway, Norway doesn't seem to me like a vassal state, doesn't feel to Norwegians like a vassal state. It is perfectly clear that we presently have a much better deal than Norway does. But actually, Norway is not a vassal state of Europe, nor will we be if we move into this transition. But where Martin and I will agree is that huge issues of substance are not going to be agreed this autumn, even if we leave in next March. I would say it's not clear that we're actually going to leave next March. I think we could yet see that date pushed back. But Huge issues, whenever it is next year, if it's next year, huge issues will be left unresolved. This fight will continue. Britain will become even more divided. And my final bet will be that the result of this is Scotland will leave the Union. Not necessarily in a year or two or three, but in 10 years' time, if we are out of the EU, Scotland will not be shackled to Little England. And just before I come to Martin on that, there's also the question of Northern Ireland as well, that obviously Brexit, because the the different constituent nations of the UK voted very differently on this, the bonds have really been pulled at the seams by that. Only Wales and England were enthusiastic Brexit supporters, so we do have to wonder about Northern Ireland as well. What do you make of that, what Philip was just saying, Martin, about? I mean, forecasting the consequences of our leaving, the great argument for the second referendum is that it's just so catastrophic, we have to rethink and rethink. But on the two points that are raised, yes, I do agree that Scotland will leave. And my guess is that 10, 15 years from now, Northern Ireland will have joined Southern Ireland. I know this is obviously a very provocative statement, but I think the demography of Ireland and the economics of Ireland booming, the British economy and all the difficulties they have certainly cuts in the subsidies. I foresee them. The Good Friday Agreement, as I understand it, allows for the possibility. And I would expect that the younger generations, probably less tainted by the old conflicts, will say, well, why not be part of Ireland, which is part of a, th- boom- a booming part of Europe rather than shackled to the corpse, as you said? 
I agree with Martin, except I think Northern Ireland would have a job to do to persuade the Republic actually to take it. I have an Irish as well as a British passport. There are a lot of people in the Republic who regard economically, socially, Northern Ireland as a rather backward place and who actually, though they pay lip service to a united Ireland, feel rather comfortable being a modern European state, completely separate from Northern Ireland in terms of its judicial, political and social system. And finally, I've got one last point just to put to each of you about the second referendum case, which is both your arguments are sort of on this idea that things are obviously not going to plan, the options are not going to be great. But fundamentally, the views of the British people, the polling has shifted a little bit away. There is almost a majority support for people's vote on the final deal. But generally, sentiments haven't changed that much. What would need to happen to win that round, do you think, both Philip and Martin? Well, the one thing we should have learnt from the last referendum is don't pay any attention to the polling because all the polling before the last referendum pointed to a Remain vote. So I don't look at the polls today and say, well, Remain is a bit ahead, so let's go for a second referendum. I think this is an issue about principle. If the people decided a second time with the clear choice they didn't have in 2016 to leave, it would be a decision I disagreed with, but I would have to obviously respect. But I actually think that the decision taken in 2016 reflected many things apart from Europe. I think a vote where people had the terms of departure against the terms of remaining might well produce a different result. But the polls tell us nothing. As I've already said, we would know what staying in would mean if we are allowed to stay in. That's a separate issue. We wouldn't actually know the terms of departure, except very crudely. So it'd be quite a difficult campaign. But in terms of your question, it would need some really pretty major Remainer campaigners who have credibility and force. And one of the big problems we had in the last referendum, and I think it would be worse now, because then at least the Prime Minister and Chancellor were on that side, is who would these people be? And obviously that then gets to the fundamental question of where British politics are on that. We've got a Labour Party that's all over the place in this issue, but basically against staying in. And we have a Conservative Party that is against staying in, whatever the individual parliamentarians think. In that context, I think it would be difficult to get a decisive vote against the Brexit process. That's just a prediction, not a normative statement. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to George, Miranda, Martin and Philip for joining us. We'll be back next week for another instalment. But before you go, please do fill out our survey. We're asking you what you think of our Financial Times podcast. So click on the link in the show notes to send us some feedback. FT Politics was presented by Sebastian Payne and produced by Molly Mintz. Until next time, thanks for listening. are on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.